I realized that, yeah, we're, we're not only going to have to break the law, um, we're going to have to get everybody to break the law and refuse to stop, refuse to stop breaking the law until we get what we require to survive. And that's our job. That is our duty as citizens. James Hansen, the NASA scientist whose, whose science I read for years, he, um, he talked about 350 parts per million. Um, he uses the word non-governable. Now, he doesn't describe disasters the way Roger Hallam does. He simply says, if you want a governable society, he doesn't say democratic. He doesn't say communist or totalitarian. He says, if you want a governable society, you've got to get down below 350. And the time frame for that is zero. We're there today. It's a crime to burn fossil fuels, period, the end. It is our duty in an emergency to stop. The evidence is clear. We are in an unprecedented Earth emergency. This is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world. This is the challenge for all of humanity. This must stop now. Hello, this is Anna from Rebel Radio and today's podcast is going to be a Rebel Radio special format. I've brought you a film called The Race to Save the World. It's going to be released globally on Earth Day, April the 22nd. It's an American documentary that follows the fortunes of climate activists in the west coast of America in the Portland, Oregon area over a period of about five years. When I saw this movie, I was really inspired and I felt re-energized. And that's why I wanted to share it with everyone else in the rebellion. There's something brilliant about seeing people in another part of the world who are doing the same things as you, having the same problems, challenges, but know the same truth and are compelled to keep on going. And that's the essence of this film that I wanted to bring to you. So in this programme, I interview the director, Joe Gantz, and then there's a conversation with three of the five subjects of the film, so Bill, Abby and Michael. So I hope you enjoy the interviews and I really hope you enjoy the film. And if you enjoy the film and you want to show it to other people, then we have set up a kind of system to do group screenings as we did with 2040. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, especially talking to the other activists. I, I could talk to them for ages. Today I'm joined by Joe Gantz, who's the director of that film so that he can tell us all about it. So, Joe, this is a documentary about climate activists in the U.S. How did you come to make this film? Well, when I started this film, I knew that I wanted to do a film on climate change, and I knew that was you know, a critically important issue for everyone on this planet. But the films that were being made, well, let, let's go back. The, the first documentaries that were made were necessary to educate people. And then it got to a point where I felt that the information about climate change was sort of in the ether. You you kind of, everyone sort of had a sense of how bad things are and how much worse they're going to get. 
And when a new documentary came out, giving these statistics and projections, you know, many of us felt like we should watch it, but it was so overwhelming because those facts are so depressing. I wanted to do a film that would be uplifting. And I felt that with my style of filmmaking, if I could follow people the way I film, which I call life in progress, who are in the trenches doing anything and everything they can to turn this around, people who are not able to tune this out like many others uh, around the world, uh, it would be a kind of energizing and inspiring film rather than something overwhelming and depressing. So um, you've identified your targets because it's how, how many subjects are there in the film? About six or seven different groups well, the, that you kind of follow? There's five groups and seven people or maybe eight people. <laughs> If you count everybody, maybe eight people. Okay, so, I mean, the people that we're going to talk to in in depth later are Abby, Bill and Michael. But um, one of the characters, because all the people in the film do slightly different things, don't they? And yet they're all geographically start off in the same area, Portland, Seattle, West Coast, US. How did you find those people and how did you know which ones to start? following the story, because the, the action takes place over five years. So um, I started off doing this film, and I followed the Climate March first. And that's a group of people who were walking across the country from Long Beach, California, to Washington, D.C. And I followed those folks and filmed them many times over the course of their journey. And then also when they got to, finally got to Washington, D.C., Many of them uh, had decided that walking across the country and talking to people was not going to accomplish enough. And over the course of that journey, they had kind of grown and changed and they decided that uh, they wanted to do some direct action. And so I filmed them uh, with their demonstrations at FERC. So originally when I made the film, I was open to all kinds of different people who were uh, involved in the fight against climate change from journalists to scientists to activists. But as time went on, you know, the the scientists were looking to come up with some, you know, new alternative energy solution, and that was going to make them a lot of money. And I wasn't, you know, 100% sure that, you know, they were so focused on climate change because there was such a financial incentive. So I decided, okay, not, let's not focus on the scientists. And then the journalists and, and the professors who I was following, they were, they were sort of professional climate change advocates. In other words, they're living, they were making their living talking about climate change. And as I went on with this, I wanted people that sort of were unable to tune this out. They were unable to do anything but jump into the breach and devote their lives to fighting climate change. They saw the danger coming. They did not have the ability to tune it out. They had no choice, even if it put their relationship in risk, their career at risk. You know, if they risked being arrested, they just felt like they had no choice. They saw the danger coming and they had to take action. And those are the folks I ended up following. And I ended up following many more people than were in the film because uh, there's three rules to documentary filmmaking. Casting, casting, okay. and casting. So you have to find the right people, and uh, it you know it took me a while sometimes to find the perfect people for the film. But I think I think the film that you've made is very very inspiring, which is why 
I wanted to make the radio show about it and also for, for Extinction Rebellion to have some group screenings and preview screenings of it. In, in many ways, they're ordinary people, but they're also totally extraordinary people. And, and that's very much like our rebels in Extinction Rebellion. I mean, once it's clicked with you, you can't stop. You know, it can't unclick. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And so, so the rebels are compelled to go on, but your, your subjects in your movie are compelled to go on. And there's something for me that I found very reassuring about seeing people who were the other side of the world, but were having very similar ideas and very similar challenges and exploring all the similar emotions that we're we're doing here. And in a way, I thought it might be easier for me to show my mum your film to explain why I'm doing what I'm doing than it is to just say why I'm doing it. So we've got a preview evening, haven't we? The film is coming out on the 22nd April, which is Earth Day. But we've got a preview screening of your film on the 21st for Extinction Rebellion as a fundraiser. And also what we're going to do is do a panel with three guys from the film and some of our own rebels. But somebody we're maybe not going to work with is Miriam, who was 71, and she walked from the West Coast to the East Coast, and she had bad knees. I mean, my heart. Miriam's extraordinary. Tell me a bit more about Miriam. Well, I think you're right that the, these people are heroes with a small H. They're, they're, they're very regular people. And I think they're really no different than so many people that are, you know, fighting climate change in, in the UK, in countries around the world. But, you know, the, it's about, you know, finding out all the different aspects of of what they have to deal with to to commit to fighting climate change. Miriam's someone who was a therapist, uh, raised a family, and then as she got older, she was, you know, moved by how critical this climate change situation was to people all over the world. The first thing she did was she um, she worked in Africa. She volunteered in Africa through uh, an organization in the United States and spent a year doing that. And then when she got back, she had seen the effects of uh, climate change when she was in Africa and she just felt compelled to do something, anything. She saw a tiny advert for a group that was walking across the country. They claimed they were gonna have thousands of people from every state in the union in the United States. In fact, they had 50 people at the most and um, I think they finished the walk with about 35. But I think she said that that wow. really moved her to um, commit herself. And she felt the antidote for depression for her was to commit her life, commit to action, to do something to try to alleviate this situation as best she can. And uh, I think other people said something very similar, that you know, taking action is the only way to not feel depressed about this situation and to feel like you can do something to mitigate these circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, just speaking as one rebel, that is my motivation, is, is, is as long as I'm busy doing the best that I can, then that's okay. I love your film, Joe, and I, I found it really illuminating. And, and so it's like seeing your cousins, okay? So the cousins are very familiar and yet they do things slightly different. It reminds me of moving from London to Berlin. The architecture is very similar, but just slightly different. 
And so I think that it is really inspiring for people to see how you've captured these people and their lives and their commitment, but also the, the kind of tensions that that brings in their lives. And, and I think it's, yeah, I'm very excited about this film coming out and I'm very excited about Rebels seeing it. Not because they'll think, oh, gosh, we never thought of rebelling. They all rebel anyway, but the reassurance of having other people there. I'm so impressed, by the way, by the work that Extinction Rebellion is doing. And I think it is so powerful. Uh, Everything from the protests to the art to the costumes. And it reminds me, uh, because I'm 66, and my first uh, experience with protesting was during the Vietnam War and there was great music, there was great clothing, <laughs> and it, it all added to the excitement and the sense of unity. And I see that in the Extinction Rebellion, and I'm so moved and impressed by the work that's being done by those folks you know, all over the world. And it's a wonderful movement, and it's accomplishing so much. I'm very excited to welcome three guests who are the subjects of this film, The Race to Save the World. I've got Abby, I've got Michael, and I've got Bill. And what I'd like you to do, guys, is introduce yourselves and just say kind of what you do in the film. So, Abby, let's start with you. Uh, My name's Abby Brockway, and I uh, erected a tripod with four others and uh, blocked a mile-long oil train. Okay, thank you. Bill? Hello, um, my name's Bill Moyer, and I co-founded a group called Backbone Campaign, and we helped to organize a flotilla of kayaks to stop Shell's Arctic drilling operation in 2015. Yeah, and it looks so good in the movie. And then Michael? Yes, I'm Michael Foster. I shut down the Keystone One pipeline uh, coming across from Canada into the U.S. along with four other folks. Uh, who shut down all the Canadian tar sands pipelines one day. Uh, This was a month before the 2016 election. So this film is an extraordinary film that that follows you through journeys, I suppose, to to nonviolent civil disobedience. I guess what I'm interested in discovering here, did you guys know each other before the film? You're all West Coast, aren't you? You're all in, in Portland, is that right? And how did you arrive at the point whereby you were going to break the law? I'll ask Abby first. Um, we're all in the same region, so we're all in the Pacific Northwest. I didn't know any of the activists until one day I was at my computer and signed a petition to fight the Keystone Pipeline. And that's when I started meeting people. And I, I that's when I may have met Michael and, I've, and then I heard of Bill. But it was then that I started to meet a whole huge community of people that started waking up and realizing that the fossil fuel industry was trying to you know, get a foothold in the, in the Pacific Northwest to create this larger industry and kind of disrupt our natural I mean we're known on in this area for trees and water and sea and mountains and fresh air and uh, really that was going to be a threat to having just hundreds of thousands of oil and tar sands shipped through and shipped to China and processed. And then Bill because you've been doing backbone 
campaign for quite a long time, haven't you? Yeah, it's been about 17 years. Tell us the story of Backbone. Well, uh, we responded to what we thought was the worst president ever with George W. Bush. And I organized with a bunch of artists in the Pacific Northwest, specifically on the island where I live on Vashon. And it's just near Seattle, but sort of between Seattle and Tacoma. And those artists were giant puppet builders and sculptors and etc. And so we, uh, we, the first thing we ever did was to create a 70 foot long spandex backbone puppet and deliver it to the Democrats to tell them to stand up to the Bush administration. So um, that was sort of the genesis of our organization. But then we realized that that creative activism and the, the, the role of the artist is very valuable in uh, building and enhancing social movement and creating an enrolling uh, movement that appeals to people's deepest values and aspirations. So that effort continued and Abby indicated that the fossil fuel industry basically has had its designs on the Pacific Northwest, a place that we all deeply love, not so much as a new, but as an expanded fossil fuel corridor to Asia. And I think that that's what brought a lot of us together. And over the years, uh, Backbone Campaign hosted action camps, uh, trying to share some of the creative tools and strategies and um, tactics. And it was through that that a lot of different people sort of came together in the, in that context, training and getting ready to take the next step in their activist journey or their journey as an agent of change. Okay, yeah, and and looking at your um, backbone um, website, you've you've got some really interesting theories of change, and we'll talk about those in a minute. Michael, I understand that you started doing uh, youth projects and parades for Earth Day. So, so how how did that evolve? That was uh, something that another youth group had done, led by a. A young person in other cities and Earth Day was coming and I just thought, you know, I, I know all these kids. I want to get them out and doing something because this is an emergency. And that was uh, 2013. So I just started telling everybody, we're going to do this March. And I went and found out, how do you get a permit? You know, who do you talk to? What, what do we have to do? And put the word out. And so I met folks like Bill Moyer uh, but how it evolved uh, was over a lifetime. I'd say I heard about climate change in high school as a freshman. There was a, there was a bit of debate going on. I was on the debate team, and uh, there was a, a little piece of evidence I came across that some Exxon executive said that uh, we had five to ten years to begin to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels or we would face serious consequences. And that was 1978. And Exxon was talking about how we had five to 10 years to stop burning fuels. I didn't believe that for a second. I lived my life, I grew up, had a family, on and on. And it was only in 2013 that I finally said, you know what, nobody's gonna save us from this. We're going to have to do this ourselves. We're going to have to get the kids out in the street. We're going to have moms and dads and grandmas and everybody has to refuse to participate. 
and demand an end to this. And so having started doing that, I mean, how, how quickly did you get to the point where, okay, right, we've done the petitions, we've done the marches, we've done all that kind of stuff. It's time to, it's time to get people to take notice. Oh, yeah. For the, um, I didn't want to turn off a pipeline. I didn't want to break the law. In fact, I was very clear talking to kids and families that, you know, the one thing we don't want to do is break the law um, because that'll turn people against us. You know, we have to convince people we're going to educate. So I was an educator. I was going out to schools. I did thousands of – I talked to fifteen or 20,000 people, mostly students, and I kept doing these presentations, and I think I started to actually hear what I was saying. <laughs> and uh, looking in the faces of young people whose futures depended on us getting this done immediately because I understood the timeline for actually returning the planet to less than 350 parts per million CO2, and I actually understood what we were up against – um, I realized that, yeah, we're, we're not only going to have to break the law, um, we're going to have to get everybody to break the law and refuse to stop, refuse to stop breaking the law until we get what we require to survive. And that's our job. That is our duty as citizens. James Hansen, the NASA scientist whose, whose science I read for years, he, um, he talked about 350 parts per million. Um, he uses the word non-governable. Now, he doesn't describe disasters the way Roger Hallam does. He simply says, if you want a governable society, he doesn't say democratic. He doesn't say communist or totalitarian. He says, if you want a governable society, you've got to get down below 350. And the time frame for that is zero. We're there today. It's a crime to burn fossil fuels, period, the end. It is our duty in an emergency to stop. I, oh, I absolutely agree with you so much. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we've been talking about uh, climate changing affecting us in 30 years for 30 years. And, and then people go, well, where is it? And you go, well, just have a look over there. It's in Australia. It's in California. It's in Texas. You can see it happening. So having broken the law, how did your communities react to your breaking the law? Did you have this? I'll give this to you, Abby. Did you have this thing of, well, I agree I, I agree with the cause, but I just don't agree with your tactics? Oh, absolutely. So my dad is a, a, a lawyer, and so when I um, told him the night before what I was going to do, he was so, he said, this is not the way to do this. Um, you know, I just, don't, you know, there's so many other ways to do it. And by the end, he, we actually rounded up expert witnesses. He said, oh, I wish you committed a felony so we could have, you know, because then the appeal process, you have to guarantee to go um, all the way to the state. But otherwise, if you just have a misdemeanor, then the judges decide if they're going to hear it and it climbs up. So I just thought that his whole process of understanding how important it was, was good. Like different organizations, the Sierra Club said, you know, we don't do civil disobedience. So yay, way to go. But, you know, we have, to, that's not something that we support. Um, Earth Ministry, which is Interfaith Power and Light, 
also said the same thing. They said, we don't agree with your tactics, but we fully support you. And they actually wrote beautiful article to the group um, in support. So our church hosted a bunch of these meetings and is completely supportive of environmental meetings. And they've really come around to realizing how important um, civil disobedience has been and is to making change. Um, so I think people have definitely changed their opinion about it. My brother is still very thinking I shouldn't have done that and that wasn't a good idea. And even the National Presbyterian Church did a great article and actually became proud that I was a Presbyterian doing these actions. My father-in-law, who's I had now have his last name, I was so worried that I didn't consult with him. And he actually took the newspaper article and was passing it around to all the people in the retirement home. And he was so proud of me. And I didn't know if he would have been or not. So it definitely varied. And a lot of people changed their minds after the fact. Well, I, I, I think that's the thing with it. And Bill, I wanted to ask you because I was looking at your Backbone website and I looked at your, is, is it being Winning with Love, The Art of War or something like that? Sorry, I should have it exact, but I don't. But the thing that struck me was your phrase political calculus and how it's so important to just completely change the, the sort of paradigms that we're on. Do you want to talk us through that a bit? Because I think it will be familiar to rebels here in the UK, but they just use different language. Sure. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to start by building upon what the other folks have been saying. And uh, and just, uh, I still remember my first arrest in the 80s as a student protester and how, as a person who grew up trying to be nice and good and well-behaved, you know, it was an emotional transition that I had to go through to stand up to actually to not move from a place and to be accept arrest and again go through like a trial, and all of that was very formative for me. And I I think of rebellion as a kind of a muscle that needs to be exercised, that we that we need to be able to push into. The, the threshold of our comfort and lean forward in a way that's consistent with our innermost values and that has those values express themselves in the world. And then when we do that in a way where we're not jerked there, but we, we choose consciously to go there, that then we become more comfortable in that space. Like we grow the capacity to exist in that conflict without losing our center and losing a connection to our values and our aspirations, which then allows us to share those aspirations and those values with other people. Because ultimately, that's what this is all about, right? Um, we need to be able to have other people imagine themselves taking action, standing together with each other. Uh, one of the interesting parts of the organizing the Shell No Flotilla was that we had to do something that nobody could really picture that we were actually going to get a bunch of kayaks in front and try to stop this drilling rig from leaving. Well, we, we kind of, that took, that was kind of complicated because you have to keep people safe on the water, which is a more dangerous situation. And if you do that for the very first time in an escalated situation, people aren't going to participate or something bad could happen. So we had to have a non escalated, like a non-arrest situation flotillas to practice. And it was actually those photos, ironically, that, that started the process of really making a difference. So 
because people have to see themselves as being effective and they have to imagine themselves in that place and then start to grow into that imagination. I think that's very similar to what you're talking about and bringing up around the political calculus, because that's a phrase I heard for a lot of years, but then, um, you know, and I've heard that politics is the art of the possible. And my brother is a mathematician told me one time on a very long drive that calculus is the mathematics of changing variables. And I think that's a subject that only comes up on um, very long drives. And so if politics is the art of the possible and calculus is the mathematics of changing variables, then if we're about shifting culture, if we're about making it people helping people to imagine something different that's also changing what is politically possible right i think we have this phrase that we you know slogan we use that's uh, when the people lead the leaders follow well i think when culture shifts when the culture is makes space that um then it gives those who are the best <laughs> or maybe those who are just opportunistic, they move into the space to fill that void. So I think shifting culture and shifting what's politically possible is, is a part of being a change agent. And that's why building alliances is so important. That's why doing having actions that are unassailable and that draw people in and that people see themselves as, as with you is also, I think, quite important. And I think that that that's that's a process and it's and it's a complicated process but it's an important one yeah i, I absolutely agree and, and and i think part of the reason that i find this film so fascinating or so compelling is to be able to see people who are doing the same things that we are doing but they've arrived at it from a different place it's almost a different prism you know, and it's, it's very exciting. I mean, we have lots of very brave rebels who do amazing work. But also, um, Michael, I want to come on to you because it's so dead, deadpan, your delivery in the film, and yet actually what you do is, is very powerful. So you turn this prude pipeline off, right, which seems eminently practical to me. seems a very practical way of a approaching doing less fossil fuel and then there's a, a trial and then and then you are given a custodial sentence are you not and would, can you talk us through what that felt like you know as you make clear in the film that was definitely a possibility in your head what does it feel like when it's a possibility and then suddenly it's not possibility it's a reality yeah yeah like i think the resolve to uh take whatever sentence comes was there because I realized that everything in our system is busted. Everything in our system is is literally governing us to doom so that it, it's going to require people to stand up and say, no, I'm here to live. And so if you're going to deal with life, you're going to have to put me in jail. You're going to have to put me in prison because, you know, not that prisons are where life begins, but prisons are stupid, uh, awful, abhorrent places that we should abolish. Absolutely. They make us a more cruel and our, our country is much more dangerous because we've got prisons. Absolutely. But the idea that 
the system is going to have to say, okay, here's a perfectly average person who says the system is busted and won't sit down. So you're going to have to put him in prison because that's what the law says. Um, And the the reason why uh, shutting off, actual shutting off hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil didn't stop the system is because the next day, a thousand people didn't go out and shut down pipelines. If they had, we probably wouldn't be having this podcast right now. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for um, people to resist in numbers consistently, persistently, until the system cannot ignore them anymore. And they refuse to stop until the system stops. It's tricky. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping that by seeing this film, what, what people can do, the rebels that are already at the places that you are at, can bring their friends and their relatives who don't quite understand their motivations fully. And then they can see how this has played out all the way over there in, in Portland. It's so exciting to have somebody in the far other part of the world who's, who's chiming so much with thoughts all the way over here. Uh, it's very exciting. Well, you all are doing such brilliant work. Yeah, it's so brilliant. It's so beautiful. All of the things from the washing machine props, you know, to the, the scrubbers, to the to the glue, super glue, to the, wow, the powerful image of the oil on the squirt on the banks. I mean, there's just the, the use of culture, the videos that are coming out of Extinction Rebellion. They're just so powerful and so beautifully put together. So I think it's a real honor for us to be opening up that relationship with you. And I just want to say thank you for that. So it's not a one-way thing, right? Well, I've found out some really interesting and and great ways of talking about stuff from you. And also, I think the film is really inspiring. Just a a quick one for uh, Michael. How do you see the near future? Certainly having a a new administration is nice, but uh, we've had the climate governor here in Inslee, Governor Inslee, and he's absolutely happy to lead us into a, a period of prosperity until the dollar doesn't mean anything anymore. Yeah. One thing I've learned is that not every direct action gets as much publicity as others. So I've been to a lot of beautiful direct actions. And just because the coverage is not always there doesn't mean it doesn't matter and it's not making a difference. The deep connections that are made when you trust your life with a group of people is like no other. And I think I've realized that in this region, the level of trust and intimacy in doing this work together is life-changing and so important in building towards uh, making change in the future. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And we are winning. And Shell called it Regulatory uncertainty was one of the reasons they pulled out of their Arctic drilling project. And the regulatory uncertainty was really a description of what the movement's resistance was creating when there were 200 people on a dock cheering, stop that boat, stop that boat, as people stormed to this on water, basically like riot, nonviolent riot on the water. It was nuts. It was so amazing. But that creates... And everybody could see themselves and they associated 
their values and their hopes for this uh, place in, in, in the actions that they saw other people taking. And so we are winning. So, Bill, Abby and Michael, I feel like we could have just carried on talking for ages. And, and you are all going to come and join us in our panel on the 21st of April. So I feel really excited. I feel like it might be the start of an exchange of ideas. I, I think so much of what you're talking about, so much of what we're talking about, we're on the same groove, really, and that something great will come out of this exchange of ideas. So hopefully the panel will just be the short start of that. So that will be on the 21st of April. Tickets will go on sale from today. They will be on social media. Um, we will put them in the Rebel Radio section of the website. And also, you can just look at Rebel Radio's Twitter. We will be posting them on there. So we will be selling tickets for the preview. Then if you really like the film and you, and you want other people in your group to see it, if you email xrfilmclub at protonmail.com, we can arrange some group screenings. I feel like you might want to share it with other people, but see, see what you think once you've seen it. I think it's brilliant. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope it, it gets you in the mood for the summer. The Thanks. evidence is clear. We are in an unprecedented Earth emergency. This is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world. This is the challenge for all of humanity. This must stop now. Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Decolonize, decarbonize. We're going to rebel. Scientific realism has to win. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion.